Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The commissioners of the federal city are gentlemen of so much intelligence and respectability that I suppose I cannot do better than to repose myself on their wisdom in general. The importance of the city to the Union, I fully understand. But at present, the Union is menaced from other causes and quarters with more dangerous portents. The situation of the United States is uncommonly critical. I cannot conceive that such a visit can be of any consequence to the city. The commissioners must be my eyes. I should shudder at the thought of taking the direction out of their hands into my own. As early as July 1st, only a few short months after taking office, President Adams was already feeling under too much pressure from other affairs to turn his attention to the new federal capital taking shape on the shores of the Potomac River, and for the entirety of his presidency leading up to the year scheduled for moving the capital, the year 1800, Adams would leave affairs in the District of Columbia up to the commissioners appointed to lead the effort. What the Capitol would shape up to be, then, would be out of the hands of the President from Massachusetts. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. It has been quite a while since we have gotten an update on what was happening in the construction of the federal Capitol. And as in the narrative, we're only a year away from the date set for the government's move from Philadelphia, I thought this would be a good time to check in on what was happening in Washington, D.C., Though the sitting president had proven unable to visit, his predecessor, George Washington, toured D.C. in the summer of 1797 and found that, quote, the president's house and one wing of the Capitol stood ready to receive their roofs, while an elegant bridge had been thrown across the Potomac. Though he was out of office, Washington would retain his role of advising on architectural features of buildings and where buildings for the executive departments should be constructed. He would also put his money where his mouth was and purchase lots in various sections of the city, including parcels close to the Capitol, where he had, quote, constructed a pair of attached three-story brick houses in order to provide housing for congressmen. Despite Washington's efforts, the city was still struggling to come together. The commissioners found that they had to shift work teams around to start building the Treasury and State Department buildings in 1798 and would face a further headache that year when they learned that a congressional appropriations bill was being held up due to congressmen complaining about the salaries of those working on the federal city. Meanwhile, construction on the Capitol building was proceeding so slowly that the commissioners decided to fire the person in charge of its construction and replace him with James Hoban, the designer of the president's mansion. In an attempt to address one problem, the commissioners would find that they had created another, as Hoban's enemies would for months lodge one attack after another at him after his promotion to this new post. As the commissioners wrangled over the larger-scale problems, a visitor to the U.S. who we met back in episode 1.35, Polish nobleman Julian Nimsewicz, would, during his visit to see the Capitol, take notice of the men whose labor was actually constructing the buildings for the new government, 
including those not paid for their labor. As Neems Events wrote, quote, I've seen them in large numbers, and I was very glad that these poor unfortunates earn $8 to $10 per week. My joy was not long-lived. I'm told that they were not working for themselves. Their masters hire them out and retain all the money for themselves. What humanity. What a country of liberty. The labors in the District of Columbia were far from President Adams' mind in March 1799. Let's just go ahead and sum up what's happened in these past few months, shall we? The Kentucky and Virginia resolutions have been passed challenging the Alien and Sedition Acts in particular and federal authority in general. News had arrived about French setbacks in Europe and the Middle East. Nussau-Jean had been defeated by the USS Constitution. Negotiations had concluded to allow U.S. trade with Saint-Domingue once more. Planning for the expanded army continued to be thwarted by Congress and the President. Tensions were increasing in eastern Pennsylvania between the federal assessors and local residents. Then, at the end of February, Adams had issued his bombshell announcement of the appointment of William Vance Murray as the new U.S. Minister to France, only to rescind it under intense pressure from arch-federalists and instead replace the single nomination with that of a three-man commission consisting of Murray, Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth, and former Virginia Governor Patrick Henry. Does that about cover it? Why more people don't study the Adams presidency in depth, I'll never know, for there really is much to delve into in his years in office. Anyway, a few days into the month, Congress wrapped up its session and its members would start scattering from Philadelphia. Adams and his cabinet would still be in town when Marshal William Nichols arrived in Philadelphia on March 10th, three days after the showdown in Bethlehem, as discussed in episode 2.13, and reported back to U.S. District Judge Richard Peters that, quote, I am well satisfied that the laws of the United States cannot be executed by the officers of the government throughout the county of Northampton without military aid. The people are determined to resist. Peters, in turn, would pass the information on the next day to Secretary of State Timothy Pickering, who would then inform Adams. Adams, however, had already learned of the events in Bethlehem from the Gazette of the United States, which, by the by, despite its founder's demise in the yellow fever epidemic the year prior, was still being published by his son, John Fenno Jr. Anyway, Adams gathered together his cabinet to discuss the situation and issued a proclamation on March 12th in which he reminded everyone that he could, quote, call forth military force in order to suppress the combinations in eastern Pennsylvania and to cause the laws aforesaid to be duly executed and commanded all those taking part in Freeze's rebellion or any obstruction of federal authority, quote, to disperse and retire peaceably to their respective abodes before the 18th. Adams then called on everyone else, quote, to exert their utmost endeavors to prevent and suppress such dangerous and unlawful proceedings. Unlike with the Whiskey Rebellion, however, as noted by historian Paul Douglas Newman, this proclamation was issued without first consulting with Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin. Though Mifflin notes that Philadelphia was still, at that time, the capital of the state as well as the federal government, I do have to note that the state government would move at some point that year to Lancaster. Perhaps the move was in progress and had something to do with why there was no consultation. Unfortunately, I can't say one way or another, but felt it important to note, rather than to jump to a conclusion, on the reason for the lack of coordination. No matter, Mifflin addressed the Pennsylvania General Assembly on the 15th and, Though he admitted that, quote, 
I have received no communication from the president. It is my duty as chief magistrate of Pennsylvania to call your attention to the subject that if any measures ought to be taken on the part of the state to cooperate with the federal government, they may be devised and authorized by the legislature. It should be noted here that Mifflin was a Democratic Republican. Despite that, and despite a lack of communication from the administration, Mifflin gave his support for any measures the federal government felt should be taken in the matter. Adams, meanwhile, had already taken some action. Right before Congress recessed, they had passed the Eventual Army Act. This new act gave, quote, eventual authority to the President of the United States to augment the Army with militia forces for up to three months of active service without any further congressional consent in case of external invasion or any internal insurrection. On March 11th, Adams activated the eventual army, and William McPherson, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, was tapped as brigadier general to command the eventual army. Like with the new army, the eventual army would take time to come together, and General McPherson, like the generals of the new army, would complain about Secretary of War James McHenry's administrative skills. McPherson would find a willing audience in General Hamilton, to whom he complained on March 25th about how he would have called up forces for the eventual army differently than McHenry, and how he would have to work in the field to correct the delays caused due to McHenry's organizational plans. However, McPherson would find little to do as his force assembled. The day after writing to Hamilton, he traveled into the countryside to gather guides and to seek out Federalist supporters, and he found a land at peace. As noted by Newman, quote, exactly four weeks had elapsed since the rescue at the Sun Inn, and not a single act of violence had followed. In fact, several of the rebels had already surrendered themselves to authorities in Philadelphia. Despite the calm in the region, as we'll expand upon later in the episode, the eventual army marched on April 4th for Northampton and Bucks counties. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hamilton, even before Freeze's rebellion, had been considering whether the army should be used in other areas that were threatening federal authority. In early February, he wrote Senator Theodore Sedgwick about the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and what actions should be taken to respond to them. In addition to a congressional special committee responding with a report that would defend the measures taken in the name of national security by the federal government, Hamilton also felt that, quote, the government must not merely defend itself, but must attack and arraign its enemies. While in the next sentence, he stressed that, quote, great care should be taken to distinguish the people of Virginia from the legislature, he also advocated that, once the new army was assembled, it should, quote, be drawn towards Virginia, for which there is an obvious pretext, and then let measures be taken to act upon the laws and put Virginia to the test of resistance. Yes, you heard it right. Alexander Hamilton was advocating marching an army into Virginia to provoke Democratic-Republicans in the area. This provocation and the reaction of Democratic-Republicans was exactly what Vice President Jefferson feared. He wrote to Archibald Stewart on February 13th that, quote, Several parts of this state, i.e. Pennsylvania, are so violent that we fear an insurrection. This will be brought about by some if they can. 
It is the only thing we have to fear. The appearance of an attack of force against the government would check the present current of the middle states and rally them round the government. Whereas if suffered to go on, it will press on to a reformation of abuses. The materials now bearing on the public mind will infallibly restore it to its Republican soundness in the course of the present summer, if the knowledge of facts can only be disseminated among the people. The next day, he wrote to Edmund Pendleton on the same subject and asserted that while the American people would not support an armed insurrection against its own government, quote, keep away all show of force and they will bear down the evil propensities of the government by the constitutional means of election and petition. Jefferson saw the same thing that some Federalists were starting to see. Heavy-handed tactics would only turn the public tide away from the party in power. Yet now, there were military forces marching out from Philadelphia into the countryside. Unlike with the Whiskey Rebellion, though, the president would not be joining the eventual army on its march. No, Mr. Adams was actually nowhere near Philadelphia when the army marched. By that point in time, President Adams was already back at home in Quincy, Massachusetts. Okay, dear listener, pick your jaw from the floor. Yes, when not one but two armies were being prepared to address dangers of domestic insurrection and a possible war with a foreign nation, the president left the national capital at a time before jets and telecommunications. Up until now, in points of his presidency in which his actions, or lack thereof, have been criticized by later historians, I've been able to present alternate views that provide a possible justification to show how his decisions could have been in what he perceived the best interests of the nation. But here, I can't. As noted by historian Lynn Withy, quote, He left so abruptly, in fact, that many Philadelphians complained that he was neglecting public business. A friend of Abigail's even wrote to her of the danger of his decision to be away from the Capitol at such a crucial time, yet she just shrugged it off. In this decision, though Adams tried to justify it by noting the frequent and constant mail service between Quincy and Philadelphia, the fact of the matter was that he left for Quincy out of purely personal motivation, and that decision would cause the apparatus of government to slow down and hinder the administration's ability to respond to new situations. Not only was he ready to be away from Philadelphia and the harsh political critique he had experienced since the Murray nomination, President Adams was aching to be back with Abigail in Quincy. He wrote to his wife on March 7th that, quote, I've been so overwhelmed with business at the close of the session of Congress and since that I've not been able to write you for several days. I cannot say whether I shall see you in March. I have much to do but neither a sense of duty nor the feelings of inclination will be wanting to induce me to see you at Quincy as soon as possible. I shall not go to Washington. I cannot. A few days later, on the 11th, he wrote dejectedly that, quote, I cannot say when I shall be able to set out, but I shall lose no time here. When the public business is in such a state that I can leave it, I shall go, be the roads as they may. I expect bad traveling all the way. We have a silly insurgence in Northampton County in this state, which shall detain me, I suppose, some days. Silly insurgents or no, Adams hit the road not long after and would be with his partner in life, or, as he referred to her, his dearest friend, once more. While naturally this tugs at the heartstrings for the romantic gesture, this is a podcast about the American presidency, and for a president to be neglectful of his duties cannot be commended. Speaking of neglected duties, 
I think the time is right to catch up with everyone's favorite turncoat general, James Wilkinson. When we last saw him in episode 2.9, Wilkinson was mobilizing forces to assume U.S. authority in the unorganized regions of the southwest U.S., an area that had previously been dominated by the Spanish, despite the U.S. having been awarded the territory at the end of the Revolutionary War. Though Wilkinson had previously been a paid Spanish agent, he had decided to go straight and actually do his duty as one of the highest-ranking generals of the U.S. Army to see that the provisions of Pinckney's Treaty were carried out. As part of this process, the city of Natchez had been evacuated by the Spanish and the Mississippi Territory was established to formally organize the area. Also part of the process was a joint U.S.-Spanish survey to settle the issue of the boundary between American and Spanish territory. For astute listeners of the podcast, the name Andrew Ellicott may ring a bell. As we learned in episode 1.14, he was the head of a team which did surveying work to lay out the District of Columbia. By 1798, Ellicott was serving as the American Boundary Commissioner in the Southwest. When he arrived to take up the post in February 1797, he had encountered stiff resistance from the Spanish, and as the year went on and he started to make connections, Ellicott eventually came into contact with people who knew of Wilkinson's double-dealing past. Indeed, he wrote to Secretary of State Pickering of his suspicions about Wilkinson's loyalty on November 14, 1797. However, Wilkinson's about-face caused Ellicott to doubt his initial concerns. It was into this situation that Wilkinson sailed down to Loftus Heights, a point on the Mississippi River south of Natchez, in August 1798, where Wilkinson ordered the construction of Fort Adams before proceeding into the wilderness to meet up with Ellicott, the Spanish Boundary Commissioner, and their team. Wilkinson would join them in their camp in October, where they had scheduled a conference with the governor of the Mississippi Territory, Winthrop Sargent, to discuss the makeup of the territorial government. Due to Sargent being ill and Ellicott's deference in such matters, the conference was rather well dominated by Wilkinson. This visit, however, would give Wilkinson an opportunity to meet with one of the folks who had told Ellicott of Wilson's duplicity in the first place, Daniel Clark Jr., In their meeting, Clark tried to convince Wilkinson to sign off on a plan for the U.S. to preemptively seize New Orleans from the Spanish based on the rumors flying around that France was seeking to take back control of Louisiana, as discussed last episode. Wilkinson demurred in doing so due to the prevailing government policy against it, though asserting that he was personally in favor of the U.S. taking over New Orleans. Clark, already knowing of Wilkinson's Spanish connection, started to doubt Wilkinson's motives in not agreeing to the campaign government policy. (laughs) Likely story from the Spanish agent. The conference eventually broke up, and Ellicott and the party continued on their survey. In early November, miraculously, and I say this in my most sarcastic voice ever, a letter from the Spanish governor of Louisiana, Manuel Gallozo de Lemos, quote, fell into my, i.e. Ellicott's hands, for a few hours. The letter was to another Spanish agent who happened to be another of the folks that had told Ellicott about Wilkinson's ties to the Spanish. Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linklater speculates that, quote, only Clark could have engineered the theft of the letter and its swift conveyance to Ellicott. In the letter, Gelso discusses Wilkinson's visit to Ellicott's camp and insinuates that Wilkinson had intended, quote, to obtain his papers during the visit, the papers in question being his correspondence and reports to the Spanish government. Gayoso informs the agent that Wilkinson's papers, quote, are all safe and never will be made use of against him if he conducts himself with propriety. In fact, the originals are at the court. The copies only are here. 
The court, by the way, meant the Spanish capital, Madrid. When Ellicott read this, he felt that this was incontrovertible proof of Wilkinson's guilt, and he reported as such to Pickering. Again, though, it seems that Ellicott started to doubt his certitude, and thus wrote to Wilkinson on December 16th about the letter from Gelso, which he said, quote, Your name is mentioned in a manner that astonished me. I dare not commit any part of it to paper, but if I should ever have the pleasure of another interview with you, I will communicate the substance of it under the injunction of secrecy. If the design of it has been to injure you, in my opinion, it has failed in its effect. For in the most material point, I am confident it is false. Oh, Ellicott, Ellicott, Ellicott. Poor, dear, sweet, trusting Ellicott. As soon as Wilkinson got this letter, he realized just what he had to do. Namely, he had to crush Ellicott like a bug, or at the very least, crush his reputation. Thus, Wilkinson and associates started a smear campaign against Ellicott, and since the surveyor was in the wilderness and removed from the public milieu, it would be some time before Ellicott would first learn about the attacks on his character, then actually be in a position to launch a defense. When he found out what was going on, though, and he made his way back to the more populated areas of the nation, Andrew Ellicott was intent on exposing Wilkinson for the traitor that he was. Meanwhile, back on the East Coast, Army mobilization continued along very slowly. Efforts weren't helped by the fact that by this point, the commanding general himself believed that it was a lost cause. Around the time that President Adams was making his way to Quincy in late March, General Washington wrote to General Hamilton that, quote, In the present state of the army, or, more properly, the embryo of one, for I do not perceive from anything that has come to my knowledge that we are likely to move beyond this. And until the augmented force shall have been recruited, assembled, and in the field, the residence of the paymaster general, I did not know there was one until your letter announced it, will be found most eligible at the seat of the general government, and you will please to give such orders respecting it, as you shall think proper, for I am unwilling to issue any. Despite this, or possibly motivated to pursue a further expansion of his role because of this, Hamilton persisted in throwing himself into all military matters. With the response to Freeze's rebellion, he cautioned Secretary of War James McHenry that he felt the force called up to respond was too small, and asserted, quote, "'Tis better far to err on the other side. Whenever the government appears in arms, it ought to appear like a Hercules, and inspire respect by the display of strength." Often, assessments of the Adams presidency talk about the strong influence that Hamilton had on Adams's cabinet. But even with the president out of town, it seems that in the spring of 1799, Hamilton was more frustrated by his lack of control. During this time of trying to push the stone that was the new army up the hill, no detail was too small to escape his notice. On May 18th, Hamilton wrote to McHenry complaining about the hats provided for the 12th Regiment. Quote, I was assured that cocked hats were provided, but the hats received are only capable of being cocked on one side, and the brim is otherwise so narrow as to consult neither good appearance nor utility. For his part, McHenry was more focused in the spring on ensuring that Freeze's rebellion was put down. The intelligence that McHenry was receiving about the situation on the ground seemed to indicate at most 150 individuals involved, so he felt that the force that was prepared under McPherson was sufficient. Others in the cabinet, however, were not so sure. Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. would write to Hamilton about the response to Freeze's rebellion on April 1st that, quote, 
I'm grieved when I think of the situation of the government. An affair which ought to have been settled at once will cost much time and perhaps be so managed as to encourage other informidable rebellions. Mr. McHenry does the best in his power, yet his operations are such as to confirm more and more a belief of utter unfitness for the situation. The president has been informed of the disorders in that department, yet there appears no disposition to apply any correction. Funny enough, though, in a letter to his brother around the same time, Secretary Walcott dismissed Freeze's rebellion as, quote, a paltry insurrection which I am inclined to think will be subdued without difficulty. Was the letter to Hamilton a bit of brown-nosing to hop on the McHenry bashing bus that Hamilton had been driving for a while, or did it reflect his more genuine concerns? Who is to say? But as in other instances, it would seem that McHenry would in fact be proven correct. Right after Adams issued his proclamation, a meeting with over 200 attendees was held on March 18th with John Freeze among those attending. And they ended the meeting with a call for area residents, quote, to desist from opposing any public officer in the execution of his office and enjoined upon the citizens to use their influence to prevent any opposition and to give due submission to the laws of the United States. Thus, as mentioned before, when General McPherson and the eventual army arrived in the area, it was pretty easy going. McPherson issued a statement warning citizens to not oppose the army in its work and proceeded to round up John Freeze and bring him into custody. For a couple of weeks in April, McPherson's forces made their way through Northampton and Bucks counties, arresting those suspected of participating in Freeze's rebellion and serving warrants. They encountered no resistance beyond attempts to evade the authorities. By April 23rd, seeing that it was pretty much all over, McPherson released the regular soldiers that had been placed under his command and marched the volunteers back to Philadelphia two days later. Unlike as in the response to the Whiskey Rebellion, there would be no ad hoc justice issued under McPherson's command. Freeze and his neighbors would stand trial in Philadelphia in a regular court of law. Though there would not be quite as much intimidation as had occurred in the western part of the state in the aftermath of the Whiskey Rebellion, there was at least one case of a newspaper publisher in eastern Pennsylvania being assailed by federal troops. On April 9th, Jacob Schneider had printed an account that a light horse company had cut down Liberty Poles in the area. Forces under a Captain Montgomery showed up at Schneider's press on the morning of the 20th asking who wrote the article. As Schneider would later report, after he took credit as the author, the troops, quote, tore the clothes from my body like a banditti of robbers and assassins and forcibly dragged me from my house before their captain. Captain Montgomery ordered, quote, 25 lashes to be administered across his back with a knotted whip. But the punishment was interrupted after just six blows as another company led by Captain Laper arrived and Laper ordered Schneider to be released. As we've discussed previously, after the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts, harassment of the press was nothing new and was carried out by both official authorities and impassioned citizens. Indeed, after the new publisher of the Philadelphia Aurora, William Duane, published articles about the assault on Schneider, an armed mob showed up at his printing office in early May demanding that he reveal his anonymous source on the attack. Despite threats of physical violence on him and others, and with one of the members of the mob holding a gun to his head, Dwayne would not reveal his source, and the mob eventually dissolved without inflicting any damage on either him or his press. 
One Democratic Republican newspaper man who did finally get some good news in early 1799 was our old friend, Matthew Lyon. We last left him in episode 2.11, still sitting in a jail cell in Vermont, despite winning re-election to Congress. On February 9, 1799, Lyon was finally released. He was not completely out of danger, though. Prior to his release, he had received a warning that there were plans to prosecute him on new charges of sedition related to letters he had written during his imprisonment. So prior to leaving his cell, as he was being released, Lyon announced that, quote, I am on my way to Congress. As members of the House of Representatives were shielded from arrest while traveling to the Capitol, this pronouncement ended the threat and protected Lyon from being imprisoned once more. However, once he reached Philadelphia, he encountered yet another challenge. Federalists in Congress moved to expel Lyon from that body due to his having been convicted of violating the Sedition Act. The motion would fail, though, as Federalists were not able to achieve a two-thirds majority for expulsion. Federalists wouldn't be getting rid of the Lyon of Vermont that easily, but by the spring and summer of 1799, Matthew Lyon was the least of their concerns in the minds of many arch-Federalists. Indeed, an increasing number of Federalists were identifying the President himself as the greatest threat to their cause. Prominent Massachusetts Federalist Theodore Sedgwick wrote to U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King in the aftermath of the Murray nomination about how much he felt that Adams had undermined his fellow Federalists with this risky move. Quote, The foundation on which confidence rested has been, by this strange measure, destroyed, and the consequences disagreeable and maybe more so. I do not undertake even to conjecture their nature or extent, but it is impossible to reoccupy the ground which has been lost. More so than even his actions. As Adams remained away from Philadelphia month after month, Federalists increasingly felt that the administration was adrift. As early as April 1st, Secretary of the Treasury Walcott wrote that, quote, we have no president here, and the appearance of languor and indecision are discouraging to the friends of government. By late June, Hamilton would write to Secretary of War McHenry that, quote, It is a pity, my dear sir, and a reproach that our administration have no general plan. Certainly there ought to be one formed without delay. If the chief is too desultory, his ministers ought to be the more united and steady and well settled in some reasonable system of measures. Adams, meanwhile, had much to reflect on in Quincy. Shortly after his arrival, he wrote to Attorney General Charles Lee, quote, The nomination of Murray has had one good effect at least. It has shown to every observing and thinking man the real strength or weakness of the Constitution and where one part of that weakness resides. It has also produced a display of the real spirit of the parties in this country and the objects they have in view. To me, it has laid open characters. Some of these will do well to study a little more maturely the spirit of their stations. But vanity has no limits. Arrogance shall be made to feel a curb. If anyone entertains the idea that because I am president of three votes only, I am in the power of a party, they shall find that I am no more so than the Constitution forces upon me. If combinations of senators, generals, and heads of departments shall be formed such as I cannot resist, and measures are demanded of me that I cannot adopt, my remedy is plain and certain. I will try my own strength at resistance first, however. By this point, Adams had been president for two years, yet his mind still went back to the election where he won by only three electoral votes. Why? Well, I'm going to add my two cents in for what it's worth. From what we've seen of Mr. Adams thus far, he is staunchly independent. Thus, he's felt restrained by two yokes thus far in his presidency. 
his dependency on the support of the Federalists, and his dependency on the legacy of George Washington. Time and again, we've seen him struggle under these, but when he first entered office, he felt that he had no choice but to give in. Instead of being able to bring Vice President Jefferson closer into administration matters as he wished, he acceded to Federalist demands that Jefferson be kept at arm's length. Rather than bring in folks that he could trust, he retained Washington's cabinet. He would gain some minor victories of independent thought here and there, but the Murray nomination was an indicator that he just wouldn't toe the party line. If he was going to be president, then he was going to be President John Adams, not the Federalist president or some pale imitation of George Washington. In order to do so, however, Adams knew he would have to take on some of the biggest names in American politics at that point. As spring went into summer, Adams would remain in Quincy, where he would try to determine what to do next. We'll leave the president at Peacefield for now, but we'll pick back up next time in an episode I'd like to call High Noon in Trenton. For those listening to this episode within the first week after it launches, I need to ask a favor. Our local national public radio station, WFAE, is hosting a contest called the Queen City PodQuest, where they're asking for ideas from local residents for a new podcast. I pitched a spinoff of this podcast, which I'm calling 45 and Counting, a Presidency's Podcast. As with this podcast, 45 and Counting will be a discussion of presidential history, but the plan is to talk about topics of presidential history related to more contemporary events. For example, recent discussion of nuclear disarmament may lead to an episode on the original START Treaty or Cold War nuclear containment policies. 45 and Counting won't take sides in the current political discourse as there are far enough folks who can do that better. Rather, it's to provide the historical context for where we're at today in order to help us make more informed decisions about where we're going. If you'd like to support this effort, you have until the end of the day on Sunday, February 17th to vote. I'm putting the link on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, where you can also find the sources used in this episode. Everyone can vote once a day, but you have to have a Facebook account in order to vote. This could lead to a possible production deal for me, so I would greatly appreciate your support. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me through social media. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.